Well, that rain has finally stopped, but it looks like there's some fog closing in. Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and it's a meteorological start to the second season. First, we had that wet Saturday, and now we've got some fog. But it's not an actual fog. It's more a fog of the mind. Here's Hitch. He stands behind a desk that has a telephone on it, and he holds a feather duster in his hand. There appears to be a woman wearing a big hat, sitting between us and him, partially blocking out the view. Good evening, friends and others. Tonight, madam, some of our audience are having difficulty in seeing. Would you mind? Two hands reach up and remove the hat. And the head. It turns out to be a mannequin. Thank you. On the theory that what was good enough for Shakespeare is good enough for us, we plan to open tonight's play with a maid soliloquizing as she dusts. Unfortunately, tonight happens to be the maid's night out. I'm expecting an important call. It must be Scotland Yard calling. Yes. Thank you. It was. They say I am being watched. That's very gratifying for a television performer. Tonight's play is entitled Fog Closing In. And fog starts to billow in, until by the end, it nearly obscures Hitchcock. Fog. I don't suppose any of you are familiar with that word. It's an American expression meaning, well, it's really hard to explain to anyone who hasn't experienced it. The word has no English equivalent. Oh, well, it isn't too important. We'd better go on with the play. But before we do, Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion have a different opening for this episode, presumably making the one we have the alternate ending for European audiences. Martin and Patrick's opening is the same up until the phone rings. It must be London calling. Hello? Am I watching television? Would you excuse me? This is a very personal call. Meanwhile, my understudy will provide some alternate entertainment. So here's Fog Closing In. First broadcast on October 7th, 1956, starring Phyllis Thaxter and Paul Langton. Teleplay by James Cavanaugh, based on the story by Martin Brook, and directed by Herschel Doherty. We have encountered three of those names before. This is the second of six Alfred Hitchcock Presents and three Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes for Phyllis Thaxter after Never Again, in which I thought she gave the best performance of the first season. Her next is Malice Domestic, episode 20 of season 2. Herschel Doherty directed 24 Alfred Hitchcock Presents and three Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes. This is his third, after The Belfry and The Creeper. His next is Kill with Kindness, episode 4, season two. And this is the third of 15 episodes written by James Cavanaugh after The Hidden Thing and The Creeper. And James Cavanaugh won an Emmy Award 
for this episode. In his Hitchcock Project blog, Jack Seabrook says, In the 10 years that Alfred Hitchcock Presents and the Alfred Hitchcock Hour were on the air, they only won three Emmy Awards. Edward W. Williams won in 1956 for editing Breakdown. Robert Stevens won in 1958 for directing The Glass Eye. And James P. Cavanaugh won in 1957 for writing Fog Closing In. What was it about this episode that led industry professionals to give it an award that otherwise eluded this well-written series? And that is a good question. Maybe they were impressed with the way he slipped in a sexual subtext in a TV series in 1956. We'll see James's work again in None Are So Blind, episode 5 of season 2. Now let's get to our story. As the lights come up, someone, a man, is opening a desk drawer and pulling out a gun. The camera focuses on the gun so that we only see part of the man, not his face. But the camera follows him as he turns and walks towards a woman, releasing its hold on the gun, but now only showing us the back of the man. The woman is looking out the window. Her back is to us, too. So for the moment, we have two faceless people, the only character we've really been introduced to in close-up is the gun. Remember what Chekhov said. The Garden of Eden was just outside Moscow. A very nice place. No, not that Chekhov. Anton Chekhov, the playwright and short story writer, who said at various times in various ways, if in the first act you have hung a pistol on the wall, then in the following one it should be fired. Otherwise, don't put it there. This is only emphasized when the man says, for his first line of the show, Don't worry, it won't go off. Not yet, in any event, and not accidentally. The woman turns and looks at the man, so we meet her first. He tells her he knows how to handle a gun, but she walks right by, telling him to put the gun back in the drawer. And as she passes, he turns, and we now see him face to face. Now, didn't I just say something about sexual subtext? He pulls a gun out, tells her he knows how to handle it. She tells him to put it back in the drawer. And before you decide I've just got a dirty mind, let's go through the rest of the episode and then see what you think. In any event, this couple is Mary and Arthur Summers, played by Phyllis Thaxter and Paul Langton. And as they continue their conversation, Mary sits, Arthur stands over her, establishing dominance over her. And once we get to the line, you're the one who wanted to take it, we get close-ups of both of them as they speak. So we quickly become quite familiar with both of them. But we do get one close-up of Mary while Arthur is speaking. By the time we go back to a two-shot, when Arthur takes the gun and puts it back in the drawer, desexualizing himself, so to speak, we never get a close-up of him again up in the bedroom, which is where they are. But we do get close-ups of Mary. So she appears to be the one that we're going to focus on. Here's that conversation giving us some of the exposition that we need to move this story along. You said you'd feel better while I was away if you had a gun. I was wrong. It wouldn't help. What would, Mary? I don't know. I... Not being left alone in this enormous old house, I suppose. You're the one who wanted to take it. We could have had that apartment in town. Yes, I, I, I suppose we could have. Only it was so small. Nobody would have been able to stay overnight, let alone... Let alone move in permanently. Isn't that what you were going to say? Not permanently, necessarily, but... The answer is still no. 
We had your parents with us for five years. Do you dislike them so much? I don't dislike them at all. I just don't want them living with us. And what's more, I'm tired of arguing about it, so let's drop it right now. You think I'm being terribly selfish, don't you? I don't know what you're being, Mary. I've almost given up trying to figure you out. All I know is I moved out here from the East to get away from your parents, to get you away from them. And you're not going to talk me into bringing them out here and starting the whole thing all over again, and that's final. I'm going downstairs away from my cab. So Mary and Arthur are a married couple. They previously lived in New York with Mary's parents for five years. Arthur has had enough, and he's taken a job to get away from them. But Mary is full of fear and is unusually, perhaps unhealthily, attached to her parents, even though we later learn she's 35 years old. That seems to be all we really need to know, except the conversation is going to continue and continue when both characters get downstairs. Arthur comes down with a suitcase and carrying a hat and coat. He's clearly going on a trip. And then the doorbell rings. You call for a cab, sir? Oh, yes. Wait just a second, please. Uh, Arthur, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm so sorry. Would you wait in the cab? I'll be right out. Sure. Arthur, I... I don't want to keep the cab waiting, Mary. But boy, does he. The cabbie seems like sort of a stereotypical New York hack, except they're not in New York. They're somewhere in the Midwest. In the story, they're in Kansas City. And Arthur, who is able in the story, drives his own car. Now, I had a chat with a friend who lives in Kansas City, and she told me that people don't take cabs there very much. But, of course, that may be complicated by these days when people generally take Uber or Lyft. So maybe Arthur would have taken a cab presumably to the airport, in 1956. And besides, just because they're in Kansas City in the story doesn't mean they're in Kansas City in the episode. In any event, the cab driver is played by Billy Nelson. He was born in Brooklyn and began his show business career in vaudeville as an actor and comedian. And he and his wife, violinist Irene Knight, developed a musical comedy act that they performed during the 1930s. In 1933, he made his first appearances in film in Hal Roach comedy shorts. He moved on to full-length films, among them Dillinger, Anchors Away, The Pride of St. Louis, Somebody Up There Likes Me, The Seven Little Foys, Undercover Man, and Twelve Angry Men as the court clerk. Is there anything wrong, gentlemen? I heard some noise. Oh, no, everything's all right. We're just, you know, friendly little argument that's... Um, listen, we're through with that diagram. You can take it if you want. By the way, six of the 12 Angry Men, Martin Balsam, John Fiedler, E.G. Marshall, Jack Klugman, Ed Binns, and Robert Weber, will all appear on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And a seventh, Henry Fonda, stars in Hitchcock's The Wrong Man. In the 1950s, Billy appeared in a lot of television programs, often as the villain, including Death Valley Days, Bat Masterson, Highway Patrol, Dragnet, the unexpected episode The Numbers Game, Boston Blackie, and M-Squad. Wikipedia says his well-honed blue-collar appearance made him a likely choice for roles as cab drivers, bartenders, and gunmen. And in his mini-bio of Billy Nelson, Bruce Detman writes, Billy Nelson always seemed to be losing the battle against gravity. 
His face, weathered and worn like an old catcher's mitt, sagged and drooped sorrowfully. And on the adventures of Superman, his baggy suits never seemed to fit quite right. Billy didn't just have bags under his weary eyes, he had footlockers. His expression seemed to proclaim, without the need for words, that he had seen it all and really wasn't too interested in seeing much more. Billy honed a total of five appearances on The Adventures of Superman. In all honesty, his roles were pretty much the same, nearly interchangeable, in fact. He was usually cast as the taciturn, thoughtless henchman and petty crook, but on occasion was promoted to lead bad guy. Still, he never seemed to have a truly mean streak despite his criminal credentials and always looked tired, more suited for an easy chair than an electric one. It was hard to dislike him. Billy Nelson died in 1979 at the age of 75. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. So the cabbie returns to his cab. We won't see him again, but he'll make his presence felt a couple of times. And Mary apologizes to Arthur for her behavior. He moves into the living room where he picks up another case and opens it, putting various papers in it that he flips through first. Who knows what the papers are? It's not like he's a business type, as he says to Mary and to us. Mary, I'm a salesman. I have to spend a certain amount of time on the road. In her review of the episode, the pie lady says, we never know what he's selling. Maybe it's guns. We do know, however, that he's going to be away for a week, which has Mary all aflutter. But before we get into their conversation, let's take a look at the layout of this house. It's going to become important later. The steps leading upstairs are right by the front door. There's a long hallway with tables and vases and various knickknacks on them leading to a back door. There is an arch in the hallway near the back door so that somebody can conveniently hide behind the arch so you can't see them as you're heading to the back door. Across from the front door and the stairway is the living room. That's where Mary and Arthur are now. So let's get back to their conversation. I know how much it's costing you to keep that house for my parents, and... Don't you see, if they could come here and live with us, then then we'd only have one house to run, and, and you wouldn't have the expense of paying Mrs. Connolly to come and stay with me while you're away, and... And you'd be happier. Ah, yes, Mrs. Connolly. We'll get back to Mrs. Connolly a little bit later. Yes, I... I'd be happier. I. Well, I, I love them and I, I miss them and I'd feel safer if they were here with me. Safe from what? What is it you're afraid of? I don't know. In this phase of the conversation, Mary keeps walking away from Arthur and Arthur keeps following her. And when he finally asks what she's afraid of, she walks to the fireplace. On the mantel, there are two framed photographs. On the right is a photo of Arthur. On the left is a photo of an older man, presumably her father. As Jack Seabrook puts it, the pictures are representing the two male forces competing for her love. And in that spirit, Mary walks to the photo of her father. And in the ensuing exchange with Arthur, the camera is set so that we see the father in between the two of them. You can't go on being like this for the rest of your life. I, I don't want to be. But you're away so much. My being away hasn't anything to do with it. You're not any better when I'm here. You're still afraid. 
Afraid of everything. I don't know how to make you feel safe, Mary. I just don't know. It wasn't like this before when Mother and Daddy were with us. You're 35 years old. You can't go on clinging to your parents for the rest of your life. The horn of the impatient cabbie breaks the moment, and Mary moves away, shaken, and sits on the couch. Arthur follows and sits by her. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Honey, don't. Look, I know I sound tough sometimes, but I don't mean to. It's just that I'm trying to help you, but I don't know how. Tell me how, Mary. Tell me what I can do. You've done everything. I, I don't know what more you can do. I don't know why you even put up with me. It's because I love you. It's because I want us to have a life together. A good life. Well, so do I, Arthur. I don't know why I'm this way. Honestly, I don't. Let's do something about it. What can we do? Mary, whatever's wrong, whatever you're afraid of or running away from, it just isn't real. It's something in your mind. So maybe a psychiatrist. Mean you. Think I'm losing my mind? Of course not. I didn't say that. Going to a psychiatrist isn't anything today. Lots of people go. People who need help because they're troubled. I can't do it, Arthur. Please, don't ask me to, please. You want to find out, don't you? I'm not... I'm not sure that I do. Maybe it's something terrible. But, Mary... Again, the cabbie breaks the moment. And who can blame him? But we were really finally getting somewhere. Mary avoiding what's really going on. The something that may be terrible. And the rest of the episode really is about Mary finding out what that is. And yes, I would say it's pretty terrible. Or at least the result of that discovery is. Arthur gets Mary to agree to consider a psychiatrist. And then he gives her a very chaste kiss on the cheek. And heads out into the hallway to pick up his other suitcase his hat and his coat. Well, incidentally, will you do me one more favor? I know you'll want to call your father, but will you wait until after six when the rates go down? Yes. Our telephone bill last month looked like the national debt. <laughs> yes, I I'll wait. Goodbye, Arthur. So long. And he gives her another very chaste kiss on the cheek and exits. And with that exit, it's time to take a look at Paul Langton. This is from an article entitled Paul Langton Started at Lowell by Hortense Morton in the March 9, 1947 edition of the San Francisco Examiner. I guess I'm the black sheep in my family, says Paul, without any noticeable tone of regret. My brothers are all in the newspaper business. One is with a Salt Lake paper, another with the Los Angeles Examiner, and the third on the Oakland Post Inquirer. We could drop the whole matter right here but there's also a bloodline explanation for his keen interest in the theater. It ties in nicely with the San Francisco Examiner, where his father, Ernest Langton, has been for over 20 years a member of the mailing department. 
Before this era, Per Langton was a headliner on the old Orpheum circuit. Those who held season tickets during those halcyon days will remember him as half of the comedy team of Langton and Swain. The act was dissolved when Swain answered the siren call of silent pictures and later made a name for himself as one of the heftiest and most explosive of Keystone cops. My dad wasn't too excited about me making the theater my career. He seemed to feel it was too precarious, says his son, adding, I did work here for a while, part-time, while I was going to Lowell. It was Sam Pollard, head of Lowell High Dramatic Class, who inspired young Langton to go in for tryouts at Reginald Traver's Little Theater. The net result was that he won a scholarship, which led to several local appearances with Travers and also with the Theater Union and Wayfarers. A part in Twelfth Night at the Greek Theater in Berkeley brought him before the gaze of director Gilmore Brown of the Pasadena Playhouse. At Brown's insistence, he went south and did 17 plays at the Playhouse. He could have added considerably to that number, but Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, mining the Pasadena territory, discovered him and offered a contract. Some of the films Paul appeared in are Destination Tokyo, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, The Incredible Shrinking Man. You can't stay here, Louise. Not now. I, I don't know, Charlie. I, I don't know what I want to do. Lou, let me help you. You can stay with us, but just get out of here. If I could just be sure. Charlie, may, maybe he's hurt someplace. Maybe he's lost. We've looked everywhere. He's dead. I'm his own brother. I wouldn't say a thing like that if I wasn't sure. You saw the cat. All right, all right. Charlie, have you thought how horrible it must have been? I just keep thinking that he needed me, and I, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. Louise, you've got to get it out of your mind. I'll never get it out of my mind. And it, the terror from beyond space. Still alive. Don't ask me why I bother. Good. Can you see it? Big as death. It's been sitting here for the last half hour. Look at his chops. Hey, incidentally, if anybody's interested at this late date, I got it figured how the critter got aboard. How? Must have followed us back to the ship after we picked you up. Climbed up one of the fins just before takeoff and got in through the open emergency hatch and sea compartment. Sounds right. How's the air down there? Pretty bad. My suit tank helps, but it's about empty. Ned! Ned is moving! He's going up the ladder! TCM says of his long stretch of movies in the 1940s and 50s, his most memorable roles were that of a young Navy ensign in John Ford's World War II drama, They Were Expendable, and a botanist who accidentally discovers a yeti in the snow creature. We found that the female and child of the snow creature had been killed by the cave-in. We held Subra and Leva at gunpoint and ordered them to carry the creature back to the entrance of the cave to meet the rest of the Sherpas. He began on television in 1951 in an episode of The Web entitled The Edge of Terror. He was in two more episodes of that series, Prelude to Murder and Brush Off, and he appeared in the Tales of Tomorrow episode The Monsters, six episodes of Suspense, The Call, Tent on the Beach, Pier 17, Death Cargo, Death on the Screen, and Frisco Payoff. Don't 
shoot with it, son. I'm just trying to make an honest buck. I'm a middleman. You'll be the middleman in the cemetery if I, you don't do as I tell you. Sure. Go on, get the bonds. All right, now burn them. Burn them? The bonds? What is you crazy? Burn them, I said. We're going to have a party. He's in the One Step Beyond episode, Premonition, and he is in two great Twilight Zone episodes. On Thursday, we leave for home, one of my favorites of the entire series, and the pilot episode, Where Is Everybody? What was the matter with me, Doc? Just off my rocker, huh? Just a kind of a nightmare that your mind manufactured for you. You see, we can feed the stomach with concentrates. We can supply microfilm for reading, recreation, even movies of a sort. We can pump oxygen in and waste material out. But there's one thing we can't simulate. That's a very basic need. Man's hunger for companionship. The barrier of loneliness. That's one thing we haven't licked yet. Paul is in five episodes of Perry Mason, in three of which he plays a district attorney. And he appears in all sorts of TV shows in the 50s and 60s. Gunsmoke, The Untouchables... Leave it to Beaver, It Takes a Thief, Ironside, My Three Sons, and Emergency. But what he is best known for is his recurring role as Leslie Harrington in the TV series Peyton Place, in which he plays the father of Ryan O'Neill. Julie, I've got an idea. I'll have to go to New York in a couple of weeks. We can get away from all this. No less. Why not? So many reasons. Why won't you understand? I understand how I feel about you. It's Rodney and Betty. They've been going together all summer. Kids go steady these days. Kids get married. Betty? What I mean is my boy has to go through college. Well, that's not all you mean, Les. Why don't you say it? Go on, say it. Betty is not the kind of girl you have to marry. She'll make a good secretary, just like her mother. Julie, that's not true. That's not the way I feel at all. This whole thing hasn't been easy on me either. Julie, I'm not casual about you, believe me. Good evening, Dad. Good evening, Mrs. Anderson. Paul Langton died in 1980, two days shy of his 67th birthday. This is his only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. After Arthur leaves, Mary closes the door and puts the chain on, something she very conveniently forgets to do later in the episode. Then she goes into the living room and she closes the window blinds. From the moment she enters the room until the moment she leaves the room, it is one continuous shot, except for one dissolve. After she closes the blinds, she goes over to the telephone, lifts the receiver, and dials 
but the number she's calling is busy. So she replaces the receiver, the camera following her hand down to the phone. There's a clock next to the phone, and it reads 432. That's where the dissolve comes in. Same shot, only now the clock reads 535. The camera pans up to Mary, who dials again. Long distance? Uh, operator, could you tell me the difference in the rate to New York City before six and after six? Oh, a as much as all that. Uh, no, I... I'd better wait till six. Thank you. She gets up and moves away, but then the phone rings. Hello? Oh, hello, Mr. Conley. How are you? Don't, don't tell me your wife's not coming. Oh, oh, thank heavens for, for a minute. I was frightened. Uh, no, she isn't here yet. I, is there anything wrong? You're sure? Yes, I, I'll, ha I'll have her call you as soon as she gets here. Goodbye. The music has stopped, and it's gotten very quiet. Mary goes over and sits on the couch. She takes a cigarette out of a box and lights it. But then she hears a sound. So she stubs the cigarette out right away and leaves the room to investigate. And that's the end of our continuous shot. Now, before we go with her to investigate in the hall, let's take a look at the strange case of Mrs. Connolly. According to Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, Mrs. Connolly is played by Carol Vesey. She's even listed in the closing credits of the episode. We last saw Carol Vesey in episode 30, Never Again, playing the nurse alongside Phyllis Thaxter. And in the podcast for that episode, I said, this is her first of two Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearances. Her next is in Fog Closing In, episode two of season two. The problem with all that is that Carol Vesey and Mrs. Connolly are nowhere to be found. It's possible that a scene was filmed with Mrs. Connolly, but I have no idea where in this story you would fit it in. And what makes things stranger is that Mary gets a call from Mr. Connolly, not telling her that Mrs. Connolly isn't showing up, but assuming that Mrs. Connolly is there. So where is Mrs. Connolly? What has become of Mrs. Connolly? She's never mentioned in the episode again. The next question concerning this segment is what has made that noise out in the hallway? Mary goes out to explore. She walks all the way down the hallway to the back door, which is unlocked, but it's closed. She locks the door, goes back to the living room, and goes right to the phone and starts to call, even though it's not 6 o'clock yet. H Hello, operator? Uh, I I'd like to place a call to New York, please. Yes, the number is my... <laughs> 
And with that sound, the music picks up again. Mary sets the phone receiver down on the desk. She goes out to investigate. Now, she was just out there, but in the short time that she's been back, it's suddenly gotten very dark out there. She peers into the darkness and sees these two glowing eyes. They actually look very artificial to me, like the owls in the trees of the Wicked Witch's Forest in The Wizard of Oz. Mary turns the light on. Oh, you frightened me. How'd you get in here? Here, kitty. Discovers that the eyes belong to a black cat who has broken a vase on one of her tables. The cat runs out the back door because the back door is now open, its lock smashed. Mary goes to examine this. We have a nice camera shot of her coming towards us and the camera panning over behind the arch where we see a man hiding his back up against the wall. And Mary turns and sees him. That's where our commercial comes in. So let's take a moment and pause and ask again, where did that first sound come from? When she heard it, Mary went out and locked the door. But the door was not open, so presumably the cat could not have gotten in. She locks the door. The lock is later broken. Our intruder, whom we later learn is named Ted, was not there behind the arch when Mary first went to lock the door. So presumably, everything is fine the first time. In the meantime, Ted breaks the lock, hides behind the arch. The cat comes in behind him, breaks the vase. So again, who made that first sound? When we return from the commercial, Mary does not cry out or run. Instead, she leans up against the door, paralleling the way Ted is leaned up against the wall opposite her. We get alternating shots of them as they talk to each other. The camera is about the same distance away from each of them, showing them approximately from the waist up, so that they become two sides of the same coin. Alter egos, in fact. And, perhaps sensing that kinship, Mary speaks with him. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to hurt you. Who are you? Please let me stay here for a little while, and then I'll go away. I promise you I'll go away. You're hiding from someone, aren't you? Yeah. Please? No. Now, please, don't ask me any more questions, because I'm not going to hurt you. Really, I'm not. If you're not hiding from the police, then... you must be from the hospital, the state hospital. During this conversation, we switch to a two-shot. And when Mary mentions the state hospital, she takes a step toward him. He takes a step toward her, like someone stepping forward while looking in a mirror. The state hospital, or the fear of the state hospital is bringing them together. However, when Ted declares himself tired, he turns away and moves back to the wall. And Mary comes to him, touches him, in the same sort of way that Arthur came after Mary, touched Mary when she turned away from him. 
The camera angle is even still the same. The positions of the two people are the same, as when Arthur told Mary that he loved her. I'm not going back there. I'm not going to go back there. Are they trying to make you? They're going to be here any minute. They warned everybody. They said I'm dangerous. They said I do terrible things to people. But that's not true. Because if I did, I'd remember it. You can't do things and not remember them, can you? I don't know. Oh, I'm so tired. All I want to do is rest. I've been running for hours and, and hiding and... You can't rest standing up in the hall. You, you better come into the living room. No, I can't. They'll see me through the window. Oh, no, they won't. The blinds are closed. Come on. You don't need to worry. You can trust me. You won't tell them I'm here when they come, will you? No, I won't tell them. I know what it's like to be afraid of a place. Come on. And now, before we join them in the living room, let's take a look at George Grizzard, who plays Ted. George was born in North Carolina, moving at the age of seven to Washington, D.C., and returning to North Carolina to attend the University of North Carolina, graduating in 1949. He said of his childhood, I was an only child, and probably very lonely, so I made up children to play with. Jean and Bounds, and Mrs. Pig, and Mrs. Hogg, and their children, in a town called Scatina. It was all a child's fantasy, but I guess that just kind of developed into wanting to create people. IMDb says... Preoccupied for a time in the advertising field, he then seemed bent on a radio broadcasting career when the acting bug suddenly bit. He studied in New York with Sanford Meisner and then eventually appeared on Broadway as Paul Newman's younger brother in The Desperate Hours, 1955. Other Broadway appearances were in The Happiest Millionaire, 1956, for which he won the Most Promising Theater World Award, The Disenchanted in 1958, where he got a Tony nomination, and Big Fish, Little Fish in 1961, where he won the Outer Critics Circle Award. And then he appeared in 1962 as Nick in Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, originating the role. He also appeared on Broadway in The Glass Menagerie, The Country Girl, Man and Superman, Judgment at Nuremberg, and The Creation of the World and Other Business, in which he played Lucifer. He said, theater is like being in a velvet jail. It's nice to have the play and the success, but you can't do anything or go anywhere. I don't like to be in plays for long runs. Of course, you can go somewhere if you're not necessarily sticking to Broadway. And George did appear elsewhere as Big Daddy in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof at Washington's Kennedy Center. And years before that, as Hamlet at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis. Now, I have a friend who saw that performance and was so impressed by it that it stuck with her through all these years. George himself said, after Hamlet, nothing scares you. And after all these theater performances, George did eventually win a Tony Award in 1996, performing in the revival of Edward Albee's A Delicate Balance. Here's James Earl Jones announcing the winner. And the four nominees are Philip Bosco, for Moon Over Buffalo. 
George Gazar for a delicate balance. George C. Scott for Inherit the Wind. Martin Shaw for An Ideal Husband. And the American Theatre Wing Tony Award goes to George Grizzard. You just don't know how happy this makes me. No matter how long you do it, it uh, it's wonderful to get a pat on the back every now and then. And I, I want to thank Edward Albee for writing this extraordinary play and for letting me have a go at this part, which Hume Cronin did so brilliantly 30 years ago. I, I want to thank uh, our producers, Bernie Gersted and Andre Bishop, who proved that the phrase, gentleman producer, is not an oxymoron. I want to thank the wonderful cast, Rosemary Harris, without whom I would not be here, Elaine Stritch, Elizabeth Wilson, Mary Beth Hurt, John Carter, and Barbara Andres. Thank you all so much. George was inducted into the American Theatre Hall of Fame in 2002. Now, his work outside of the theater was mostly in television, though he did appear with Paul Newman in the 1960 film From the Terrace. He's in Advising Consent, the 1971 film based on Kurt Vonnegut's Happy Birthday, Wanda June. Maybe God's decided to let everybody who ever lived be reborn so they can all see how it ends. Even Pithecanthropus erectus and Australopithecus and Sinanthropus pakensis and the Neanderthals are all back on Earth so they can see how it ends. <laughs> They're all in Times Square, making change for peep shows. Oh, recruiting Marines. <laughs> and one of his last roles in Clint Eastwood's Faith of Our Fathers. On television, he was in the One Step Beyond episode Brainwave, the thriller episode The Twisted Image, he was John Adams in the Adams Chronicles miniseries. Mr. Adams. Mr. Gridley. On my desk. You do not know me, sir. However, you are acquainted with Mr. Putnam, with whom I've been studying law in the country. What do you want of me? Sir, I need a patron who will recommend me to the bar in Boston. Why come to me? You admit I don't know you. I scarcely know Putnam. I have no lawyer friends here who can testify to my learning. They told me you would not be influenced by a man's connections, but by his qualities. How long did you say you'd studied the law? I've been Mr. Putnam's clerk for three years. You read Latin? Indeed. The last Latin I read was Justinian's Institutes. Where did you find that work? I have no copy in these colonies but my own. I borrowed a copy from the Harvard College Library. I was a student there. Studying what? Theology. And why did you abandon that worthy pursuit? I had developed certain doubts. About God? No, sir. About my fitness for the pulpit. He appeared in Ben Casey, Dr. Kildare, Rawhide, Marcus Welby, M.D., Hawaii Five-0, Trapper John, M.D., and The Cosby Show. And he won an Emmy Award for his role in the TV movie version of The Oldest Living Graduate, part of Preston Jones's Texas Trilogy. 
Now, when I started researching this episode, I assumed that George Grizzard was much like Charles Bronson in And So Died Rhea Bushinska and in There Was an Old Woman. Someone early in his career, not known enough yet to get a credit above the episode title, but someone who becomes very well known later on. But after asking around, I've discovered that most people haven't heard of him. So why is he well known to me? It could be that story from my friend about seeing him perform Hamlet at the Guthrie. But I think it's more likely that it's because he gives two memorable performances in two Twilight Zones. First, as a lovesick man in The Chaser, based on the John Collier short story. And then, in the doppelganger story In His Image, in which he has a conversation with himself. Exactly eight days ago, you were born here in this house. What? I made the delivery myself. You're drunk. A little bit. But not drunk enough. Will you join me? I guarantee no hangover. Wasn't that thoughtful of me? Look, I'm in no mood for jokes, mister. Well, that's a pity, because this whole thing is a joke. Well, I'm not laughing. You will. Because the joke's on me. Would you get to the point? Well, you've been to Courville. You know that Alan Talbot never lived there. You know you've been behaving oddly of late. And judging from that handkerchief on your arm, I'd say you know about that, too. So, with all this information, what do I need to tell you? Who am I? You're nobody, Alan. Nobody at all. Stop it, Walter! Well, who is this watch I'm wearing? Ask me that. Who is the refrigerator in the kitchen? Don't you understand? No. You're a machine, Alan, a mechanical device. I don't believe it. Oh, I don't blame you. I wouldn't believe it either. But it's true. George Grizar died in 2007 at the age of 79. This is his first of three Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearances. His next is Across the Threshold, episode 22 of season five, where he does get his name above the title. As we dissolve into the living room, Ted is sitting on the couch where Mary sat, taking her place, so to speak. She even invites him to stretch out and relax, though he doesn't take her up on that. Look, why don't you stretch out and rest? Isn't that time? They're right behind me. They're going to be here any minute. Even a few minutes would help, and I'll get you something hot to drink. Why are you being so kind to me? I suppose I understand what it's like to be afraid. You know, you're luckier than I am. You're afraid of being shut up. And I don't even know what I'm afraid of, and it's worse, much worse. By the time these conversations are through, she's going to have a pretty good idea of what she's afraid of. I was calling my mother when I heard you out there in the hall. Oh, that wasn't me. I didn't make any noise. I've been out there for a long time. And I was hardly breathing. And, and then that cat got in here. And I got so scared because she knocked that vase over. And I, I heard you coming and I, I didn't know you were going to be like this. I didn't know it either. 
Well, that just complicates things further. If Ted has been in the house for a while and then the cat got in, at what point did he get in the house? Didn't he break the lock? Well, never mind, because they're about to introduce themselves to each other. You know, it's funny we can talk this way, isn't it? I don't even know your name. It's Ted. Ted Lambert. Mine's Mary Hadley. Oh. Why'd I say that? It's Summers. I... It used to be Mary Hadley before I got married. Where's your husband? Oh, he's away on a trip, a, a business trip. He travels a great deal. And if Mary, forgetting to introduce herself with her married name, doesn't clue you in, there's plenty more to come. Such as when Mary tells this story and walks over to the fireplace with the two photos on the mantelpiece. But the photo she goes to is her father's, not Arthur's. Like, I remember once I, I, I got lost and a policeman found me and brought me home. I, I was crying and my daddy put his arms around me. Sometimes I, I can still feel his arms. And he said, don't cry, baby. You're safe now. You'll always be safe with Mother and me, and I always was. I always was. Well, then why are you afraid? Because I'm alone. And they're not here with me. But your husband... Oh, he doesn't understand. But it's worse than that. She sits down on the couch very close to Ted. I, I, I want to tell you something else. Something I, I've never told anyone. You mustn't tell anyone either. Oh, I won't. I promise. I never wanted to get married. I only did it because my mother and daddy lost all their money, and Arthur was so kind and generous, I, I knew he'd help me take care of them. And I thought they could stay with me, and then everything would go on just the way it always had. Uh. I wish I could take care of you. I wish I could help you. Oh, no, I don't think anyone can help me now. I, I don't think anyone can stop it from happening. I... When Ted says he wishes he could help her, he puts his hands on her, he touches her cheek, and she seems fine with it, as opposed to her reactions to her husband. But wait a minute. She just said something about how she doesn't think anybody can stop it from happening. What's she talking about? I even know where it's going to happen. Because I've dreamt about it. A lot of times. I, and it, it's always the same dream. Well, I have bad dreams, too. Mine's always the same dream. I'm always in my bedroom. That's what I meant before about saying I, I understood about being afraid of a place. Because I, I'm afraid of my bedroom. I, I sometimes think if I don't go there, it won't have to happen. There's a quote attributed to Sigmund Freud, which is, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. But you know, sometimes it's not. And sometimes the fear of a bedroom is more than just a fear of a bedroom, as indicated by the rest of the dream. I'm up there all alone, waiting for something, and... And there's a sound downstairs, like a door closing. And there are footsteps on the stairs. They come up very slowly, one at a time, till it reaches the door. And the knob turns, and 
the door begins to open and... I never know what it is because... that's when I always wake up. I wake up screaming. Well, they say that, that dreams don't come true. Oh, yes, mine will. Well, maybe not. It... They're here, they're here, they're here. They are indeed here, but Mary has a plan to keep Ted from getting caught. You can hide in the back hall where you were before, and I'll bring them in here first, and then you can get away. Go on, hurry. Ted goes to his spot behind the arch, and Mary answers the door. Sorry to bother you, ma'am. We're from the state hospital. State hospital? Yes, one of the patients wandered away, and we're looking for him. Would you mind if we search the house to be sure he isn't here? I don't see how that's possible. Well, just to be on the safe side. Mary lets them in and leads them into the living room. And once she does that, Ted slips out the back door. Now, there's two men from the state hospital. One is an extra who doesn't have any lines. And the other is Norman Willis, who was a police officer in Revenge, a bartender in the case of Mr. Pelham, and the man with the toy plane in Santa Claus and the 10th Avenue Kid. This is his last of four appearances. The men from the hospital notice that the vase has been knocked down. Mary tells them that her cat did it. She hadn't had time to clean it up. They also fixed the broken lock on the door, which must be quite a trick. Neither of these things seem to indicate to the men that Ted had been there. And they leave. Mary closes the door behind them, but does not put the chain on the door. And then, after hesitating a moment, she doesn't go back into the living room. She goes upstairs to the bedroom, the room that she fears. Why? Well, perhaps with her new understanding of what she fears, she realizes it's time for that dream to come true. Upstairs, Mary sits on the bed and tries to call her parents using the bedside telephone. It's certainly after 6 o'clock by now. I'd like to place a call to New York City, please. Yes, the number is Murray Hill 30598. Thank you. Oh, but... But all the circuits can't be busy. Oh, I see you. Well, will you call me back as soon as you can get through, please? Thank you. Ah, it's the old all circuits are busy routine again, like we had in episode 36, Mink. It sure is convenient when you need to have someone you've been trying to call, call you. Mary puts her head down on the bed, but then the music picks up. She hears the sound of the door opening downstairs. It's her dream coming true. So she slowly backs away, the camera following her, over to the desk, when she pulls out the gun, unerringly and impassively, without even turning around. Oh, here you are. I was worried about you when I heard that man from the hospital was on the loose, so I came back. Mary? Mary, don't look like that. It's me, Arthur. Answer me. Are you all right, dear? 
Yes, Daddy. I'm all right now. Now I can come home. Sometimes a gun is only a gun. But when wielded by a woman who didn't want to get married and fears her bedroom, it may be just a little bit more. By the way, Paul Fries is the voice of Mary's father. This is his second of five Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes after Momentum. His next is Demortuous, our very next episode. Now, Jack Seabrook says of this episode, Fog Closing In is a psychological study of a woman who never wanted to get married and who fears sex and adulthood, finally killing her husband so she can return to her father and her place in his family as a child. James Cavanaugh adds the character of Ted, who serves as her counterpart and who allows her to see what she is afraid of and act on it, even though the act is not rational and will have consequences. Which is all very true, but wait a minute. Cavanaugh added the character of Ted? I think it's time he looked at the short story. And at the short story's author, Martin Brook. Now, Martin Brook is a bit of a mystery, and all we really know about Martin is in the introduction to the story which was published in the June 1956 issue of Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. And that introduction says, in part, that the story was selected from an Ellery Queen class in First Stories, and that Martin Brook is a pseudonym for a housewife and mother who prefers to keep her identity secret. The nom de plume, she tells us, is a combination of her husband's and her own family names. The author was born in Princess Anne County, Virginia, and was graduated from Virginia Intermont College in Bristol, right in the middle of the Great Depression. Nevertheless, she managed to browbeat an advertising manager into letting her write signed copy for a department store. The author's husband is in retail merchandising, and they have two daughters. At the end of her letter to your editors, Martin Brooks said, It still doesn't seem possible that you would have liked the very first short story I ever wrote well enough to publish it. You're a brave man. And unfortunately, it looks like Martin only had one other story published. That was Flowers for the Living, which appeared in the June 1957 issue of the Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine. Thanks to Jack Seabrook, I got a look at the introduction to that story, hoping for more information about Martin Brook, but there was none forthcoming. As for the story itself, as Jack pointed out, there's no Ted in fact, the story has none of the details that oversimplify things and that clutter up the teleplay. No dream, no parents losing their money, no cat. Just a realization on the part of the main character that, quote, she knew the name for all her fears, end quote. The Fog Closing In by Martin Brook. How long she stood staring bleakly down the driveway, Mary Turner had no idea but it must have been quite a while after her husband, Abel, had tossed both his salesman's sample case and two-suitor into the car and backed out with unusual speed. She felt chilled through in the damp October air by the time she pulled down the garage door and locked it carefully. The kitchen was warm, at least. Warm and heavy with the odor of recently fried bacon and eggs and half-smoked cigarettes. Abel was smoking too much lately, she thought, irrelevantly for her mind was occupied with his recent bitterness. She still felt numb, as though her blood was congealed like the yellow smears on their breakfast plates. Never had he spoken so plainly to her before. Oh, she knew pretty well what he'd been thinking right along, but this time he'd said it. For Pete's sake, Mary, he'd burst out, stop nagging me. I can't stay home with you all the time just because you're scared of your own shadow. Get out and meet people. 
Then you'd have more to do than sit around and brood. I just can't, she had defended herself. Everything's so strange here. If you'd only ask for your old job back. Now, Mary, he had interrupted, you know perfectly well that this territory is much better than the one I had around Middleburg. I'd look like a fool if I told the boss I had to leave Kansas City, just because my wife wanted to live with her family. Mary remembered looking down at her plate for fear Abel would see her eyes fill up. Abel was very impatient with tears. You just won't try to understand, she had murmured. Abel had pushed his chair back abruptly, scraping along the linoleum, and stood up. God knows I've tried to understand these five years we've been married. Now look, when we moved here last summer, you wanted a house much too large for us, just so your folks could visit comfortably once in a while. You've got it. You wanted a dog to protect you during the day. I bought Clancy. You wanted someone staying with you nights when I'm away. I hired old Mrs. Powell. Still, you aren't satisfied. You're all wrapped up in some mysterious fear of something, heaven knows what, and you won't even try to adjust yourself. He had left the kitchen then, moving soundlessly as a cat, the way so many large men do, and returned almost immediately, it had seemed, ready to go. Mary, please. When we were first married, your whims and fancies were sort of cute. You were so young. But it's time you grew up. A man is entitled to his own home. And, I once hoped, his own family. We'll have to reach some definite understanding when I get back Friday. That was all he had said until he got in the car. There might have been a little smile at the corner of his lips as he leaned out to kiss her goodbye. She was never quite sure when he was laughing at her. If there's any need, he reminded her, you can reach me at the Statler in St. Louis. Then she had been alone, the fog closing in. It was time to do the dishes. But careful now, because lately dishes had a way of slipping, and Abel mustn't say again how clumsy she was. Besides, if you wash slowly, you can listen for all the little house sounds. Each house has its own sounds, and she was just getting used to this one's, like the sigh in the chimney on windy days, the creak, in spite of thick carpeting, on the third from the bottom stair when she stepped on it, and sometimes even when she didn't. The most terrifying of all had been the muffled thump in the cellar pipes when the gas heat came on automatically. At first, she was sure a heavy door was being thrown open violently, striking the concrete wall, or, at the very least, a giant fist pounding somewhere in the bowels of the house. Abel explained what it was, even taking her down below, almost by force, to point out the simple mechanics. So now she merely jumped, startled for the moment. Besides, the cellar door was always locked when Abel wasn't home. Oh yes, be sure the doors are locked. Mary left the dishes drying in the rack and began her customary tour. The kitchen door first. Then she remembered Clancy out in the little fenced-in yard for his morning run. When she unchained the door, he came in quickly, his stiff coat wet under her hand. Clancy was an incongruous name for a half-Airedale, half-police dog, but that's what the man at the pound had told Abel it was. She had hoped for something smaller, like a cocker spaniel, but was so pleased to have any dog at all, she kept quiet. Not that she felt any particular affection for Clancy. Dogs have a way of looking at you that seems too knowing but he could hear sounds and feel a presence even more quickly than she. Clancy nosed around in his already licked-clean dish. Mary tested the cellar door. Abel allowed Clancy to have the run of both kitchen and cellar, but on days when Mary was alone, she kept the dog confined to the kitchen with short excursions to the yard. So now she left him behind, regretfully, as she went through the rest of the house to be sure everything was tightly latched. If she took him with her, 
as she had once or twice before, Abel was sure to see signs of dog hair again and raise a fuss. For some reason, she just couldn't keep the house as clean as her mother's. Perhaps her mother or father could make Abel understand how cruel it was to keep her here, although when she had tried to enlist their help to persuade Abel not to take this territory in the first place, they had said, it might do you good. Of course, they hadn't really meant what they said. They were just trying to please her husband. Mary decided to call home again. Although she was not permitted to call until after six, when the long-distance rates were cheaper, it was always a good idea to have things ready. Since she was now upstairs, she went to the extension phone in their bedroom and looked at it. Dials were confusing. Hard to remember which numbers you dialed for long distance. And even if you knew, it was so easy to put a finger in the wrong circle. The book with all the instructions was in the desk. The drawer slid out smoothly, and as she reached for the phone book, something shiny caught her eye. The revolver Abel had given her. As though a revolver would be of any use, she thought scornfully. Closing the drawer, she opened the directory to the proper place and left it beside the pad where she had jotted down her parents' number. All day long it rained. Once when she was watching the sheets of water thrown up by passing cars that sped too near the gutter, she saw the woman next door run out, umbrella pulled low, to a waiting cab and drive off. Mary was pleased that Abel never found out the woman had called on her one afternoon. Mrs. Sanders, as she had introduced herself, smiling, had been very pleasant, and for a while Mary entertained the thought of returning her visit. But in retrospect, the woman's questions seemed a little sly, so Mary had decided against it. Five o'clock came at last. She fed Clancy, made herself a sandwich, and ate in the living room while watching television. There was one nice thing about a big city, all the different TV channels. Shortly before six, she turned off a newscaster saying something about bad driving conditions. Maybe I should have listened, she thought on her way upstairs. Abel may be having trouble on the road. But it was almost time to call home, which was the important thing to do. Snapping on the desk lamp, she looked at her watch. Be sure to pick up the phone at exactly 6 o'clock. The long-distance operator said there were no circuits open to Middleburg. Could she call back when the lines were clear? Mary said yes and went down to the kitchen to let Clancy out. It's getting dark, she thought uneasily. Mrs. Powell should be here soon. Just as Clancy gingerly stepped outside, the phone rang. She ran eagerly up to her bedroom. Are you the party calling Middleburg 3254? It was the operator. Yes, yes. Sorry, the circuits are still busy. Shall I keep trying? Yes, please. Mary felt deflated. Well, she might as well sit here at the desk and wait. Let Clancy whine at the door. It wouldn't hurt him. The door. There was something about the kitchen door that began to bother her. Oh, God, it was unlocked. In her hurry, she hadn't slipped the chain in place. She ran into the hall, the light from the lamp casting shadows before her, and shrank back, slowly, her eyes straining into the darkening gulf of the stairwell. Then, still edging back, she shut and locked her bedroom door in one swift motion. She leaned against the frail panels, spent and trembling. How could she have done such a terribly stupid thing? Now Clancy was outside, the kitchen door unchained, and worst of all, she was alone in a house of darkness. Then she began to breathe more easily. Mrs. Powell, she thought with a wave of relief. Mrs. Powell should be here by 6.30. It was 6.20 now. Mrs. Powell would come in through the kitchen and call, and Mary could have her turn on all the lights before venturing out. She waited calmer at her bedroom desk. 6.25. 6.28. The phone rang. Hello, Mother? This is the operator. Your Middleburg number is still busy. Shall I try again in 20 minutes? Twenty minutes, she cried. 
Can't you try sooner than that? Yes, madam, I'll try. Mary had a feeling of urgency, as though her mother's voice would make everything all right, the way it used to. Surely Abel would listen to her, please. Nothing like this could have happened if she were at home. Mother would just have to make Abel let her come home. It was now 6.35 by her watch. Where was Mrs. Powell? Could the rain be delaying her? She peered out of the window, vainly trying to see the backyard. The old fool, she said aloud in sudden fury. She's never been this late before. The sound of her own voice startled her, while outside the menacing night sent its fingers of rain tapping on the window. She yanked down the shade and inched back to the desk against the wall. It was safer at the desk, where she could watch both her bedroom door and the window. Watch and wait. From far below, farther than the shadowy hallway, the black stairwell, and the shrouded living room, came the muffled thump of a heavy door against a wall, the door of a fathomless depth, where unimaginable horrors lay in wait for an opportune moment to escape. The steam hissed in the radiators, but Mary leaned forward, listening only for the sounds she knew must come. There, a door opened and closed. Not the kitchen door, or Clancy would have barked at Mrs. Powell. It must be the cellar door, for shapeless things that walk by night will not be stopped by bolts and chains. It was as though all her life was telescoped into this one moment. She had been born and had lived for the purpose of being here in this precise room at this precise moment of inevitable doom when the nameless evil that battened in the dark caves of her mind would reveal itself. Across the shrouded living room it moves, she thought, to the black stairs, the creak of the third step. Oh, God, she thought wildly, it's almost here. What can I do? What can I do? There was no escape, no place to hide. What had Abel told her once? The revolver. At least it would be something to hold on to in her last horrible moment. Her hand flicked out, snatching the revolver from the desk drawer. It was cold, yet somehow she felt stronger. Now she could actually feel the presence in the shadowy hall nearing her room. Her knuckles whitened around cold steel. Mary, are you in there? The voice called. Her throat tightened convulsively. Mary, are you all right? It was Abel. Now, now at last she knew the name for all her fears. She watched, knowing what she must do as the door swayed, the lock splintered out under the force of his lunge. He stared speechless at her for a moment, his figure merging with the shadows in her mind. Then she pulled the trigger. She might have stood there forever, the startled cry, the crash of the heavy body having faded into deathly silence but for the blatant shrills of the bell. She looked around. Yes, the telephone was ringing. She walked slowly to the desk and lifted the receiver. Your call to Middleburg is ready, the operator said. Mother? She cleared her throat. Is anything wrong, Mary? Her mother's voice came through anxiously, the way it always did on long distance. Oh, no, Mother, she said. Everything is fine now. I'm coming home. We haven't done one of these in a while. Ingrid, it's only a movie. These are clips that I come upon that attracted my attention for whatever reason, but which don't fit smoothly into anything I plan to discuss. This one is in honor of Peter Bogdanovich, director of Targets, The Last Picture Show, and Paper Moon, among others, 
who died on January 6th at the age of 82. He and Pat Hitchcock used to make the rounds extolling Hitchcock and his work. And here they are, the two of them, on the Charlie Rose show in 1999 with Peter doing his Hitchcock impression. Because he had such a defined, <clears throat> distinct style. Personality, personality, yes, and the audience keyed into that, you yeah. know, that they really enjoyed him. They enjoyed him. Do you do, 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 do a Hitchcock I imitation? I do. I, I love thought He's that. very That's good. good. Let's see he it. does the best yeah. one. Well, I said to him once, uh, um, I asked him how he'd shot Psycho, the uh, shower scene. He says, well, the Paramount Special Effects Department made for me a torso entirely of rubber. When you plunge the knife in, blood would spurt out. Oh, it was wonderful. I didn't use it at all. <laughs> in his review of the episode, Jack Seabrook asks if the teleplay was worth an Emmy and notes that watching the episode is a tedious experience with too much dialogue and not enough action. Studying it for subtext is more interesting than sitting through it. I, frankly, find it amazing that the only teleplay to win an Emmy in the entire run of the series was this clunky script. The short story may have been too internalized, but the solution is not to laden the story with overindulgences. Some of this can be defended. Ted may be the way to externalize Mary's short story internal monologue, since Ted is, in many verbal and visual ways, a reflection of Mary. The dream might be the more explicit replacement for the one moment where she had been born and had lived for the purpose of being here in this precise room at this precise moment of inevitable doom when the nameless evil that battened in the dark caves of her mind would reveal itself, which itself, granted, is a bit much. And the dream does play up Mary's sexual fears in a way that, as Jack points out, one wonders whether she is frigid, whether she and Arthur have consummated the marriage. Well, the story makes no reference to it at all, unless it is, as again Jack points out, the line about Abel's unfulfilled desire to have a family. So does this enhance the story, or does it all, along with the remarks about Mary's parents losing their money and the dueling father figure photos on the mantelpiece, become just a little too much? It might not even be the reveals themselves, but the way they come out, all in a block near the end, as if the script is afraid it hasn't gotten its point across. So in the end, unfortunately, to me, Mary may kill Arthur with one bullet, but James Cavanaugh has shot and missed his mark. Now here's Hitch, surrounded by fog, but dispelling it by flapping his handkerchief. This concludes our play for tonight. Unhappily for Mary Summers, however, there is more to her story for she subsequently found herself in one of those institutions she had come to fear. Next time, we shall be back with another story. Until then, good night. But wait a minute, that's the DVD alternate ending again. Let's go back and recreate the original ending, according to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion. This concludes our play for tonight. Unhappily for Mary Summers, however, there is more to her story for she subsequently found herself in one of those institutions she had come to fear. Now we offer a brief message from our sponsor, after which I'll return. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 2, Twelve Angry Men, The Incredible Shrinking Man, The Twilight Zone, The Complete First Season, and The Complete Fourth Season, and Star Trek The Original Series Season 2, 
are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The suspense episode Frisco Payoff, the pilot episode of Peyton Place, The Snow Creature, Happy Birthday Wanda June, The Adams Chronicles, the Charlie Rose Show clip with Peter Bogdanovich and Patricia Hitchcock, and George Grizzard's Tony Award announcement are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. You can also leave comments in such places as Apple Podcasts, though I'm so bad at checking those things that I only recently discovered a very nice review from Kevin from Birmingham that he left back in September. So thank you, Kevin, for that. And I'll try to check in on those a little more often. Next time, episode 42, De Mortuous, starring Robert Emhart, Kara Williams, and Henry Jones. Next week, we shall be back with another nice story. Until then, good night. Thank you.